Welcome, you're listening to Why, a Good Grief Network podcast with Amy Lewis Rowe and Laura Schmidt. Welcome back to another episode of Why, a Good Grief Network podcast. Today we will be asking you for money. And I just want to put that out there because we don't want to trick you into it. That is what this episode is about, is fundraising. And there's a reason we're telling you up front, and that's because when I used to listen to episodes of shows I liked and they did their fundraising episode, I would stop listening. And that's because I felt insecure about the fact that I didn't have money to give. And so we want to first say that we're going to be talking about a lot more than just fundraising on this episode but that is the, the, main, the main focus, and that's because we have some exciting events coming up that we're going to tell you all about. But I wanted to give you a little bit of a heads up that that is what you're getting in, into. And our culture's view of money has been so shame-based in the past that we're actually trying to reframe how we think about money, how we interact with money, how we ask for money, and all of that. And so we'll talk that through uh, in this episode but I think transparency is the, is the best way through a difficult conversation. In addition to asking for your support, uh, we're going to give you a brief update on the things we've been up to, where we're at. It's been quite some time since we've given you an update because we've been doing some interviews. But yeah, stay tuned. You're going to hear a little bit more about what we've been up to, how Amy and I have been spending our days. And uh, we've officially been in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska for more than a year. So let's dig in, shall we? It's not just a brief update. We're going to dive deep in the way that we do in every episode and have authentic dialogue. And it's worth listening, even if you don't have money to donate right now. There's lots of other ways you can be a part of the Good Grief Network community. And support us. And support us. That's true. With love, messages, encouraging words, sharing our ideas, sharing our mission, and sharing the heart-centered revolution that we're all about. Woo! Praise Zeus. God, we need to talk more about the heart-centered revolution. Yeah. I'm just saying. I'm reading Terry Patton's new book, uh, Republic for the Heart. Is that what it's a called? New a Republic new Republic for the heart. of the heart, for the heart. <laughs> Something. <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes. But he was also talking about the heart-centered revolution, and I think it's absolutely necessary. I think that this current paradigm has really forced us into our heads, which has created a lot of really magnific- magnificent things and... Uh, put us in really great positions, but now it's time to, to re-include our heart in the decisions that we're making and how we operate and how we treat people. So thank right you. On. Thank you for saying heart-centered revolution. I feel so strongly about it every day. I feel like not only is it going to happen, it's already happening. God, I hope. I think Sometimes so. it doesn't feel like oh, it. Oh, I think so. I know. And that's uh, the revolution won't be televised, but it will be live-streamed. We're seeing glimpses of it with Extinction Rebellion. We're seeing glimpses of it with Black Lives Matter. We're seeing uh, Pride. Oh, my gosh, we went to a small-town Pride event last week, and it was the most beautiful thing I've seen in a while, uh, to see such a small-town community with rainbow tents and dancing and drag queens. It was magical. And the drag queens were really inspirational. What they were doing was encouraging messages and saying you're beautiful the way you are types of messages like that uh but this was they did such a good job of making drag culture family friendly 
and and inclusive and inclusive of all and all all genders all sexual orientations families it was it was absolutely beautiful it was and it was great and we got to see some friends who we met last year at the pride event and catch up with them and Amy and I will be relocating relatively soon to Tucson Arizona um, Amy, why are we move into Tucson? Because uh, let's just make it clear, Laura is not a hot weather person. <laughs> that's that's true. So it's a, it's another temporary move because Laura hates the heat. Because um, Laura will die. Laura hates the heat like I hate hate winter. And hate sounds like a strong word, but if you saw how the winter just breaks my spirit and my heart, uh, you would understand where it's coming from. We're moving to Tucson because my sister lives there and is having a baby, and we want to be nearby. We're going to be able to help with childcare a bit. Also, her partner works at a dog kennel. He's actually buying the dog kennel, uh, so he'll be running it, and he could use some extra help there. Wait, does that mean I get to work with dogs? You get to work with dogs what? every day if you want, honey. No, I don't want to do it. <laughs> I, I would like to make some money in a way that, that's working with dogs. But uh, it seems like the best of both worlds because right now we're not making a living off of good grief. And because of that, we work side jobs. And so having a side job that we like and is grounding to help balance out this big grief work that we're doing every day is is pretty humbling and and good for us generally. So uh, Laura loves dogs. For those of you who don't know, she's I would go as far to say as obsessed with dogs. And True. it's adorable. Wait, am I allowed to say that? Am I supposed to be professional? I, but I, I think know. it's adorable. Um, her, She just absolutely loves dogs and wants to spend all her time with dogs. And I am a little overwhelmed by them sometimes, to be honest. So I am excited that she's the one who's enthusiastically saying yes to helping at the dog kennel. My sister and I both said, meh, maybe <laughs> we'll help, but let's see how it goes. <laughs> With the new baby. So, yeah. so I'm, I'm looking forward to being a mile down the road from my sister. I haven't lived with her probably since I left for college at 18. I mean, I guess we probably lived together for some summers here and there when she was still a teenager. But now we're both grown, and it'll be really exciting to not live states away where we have to catch a plane to see each other. And now I can just mosey on down the road and, and say hi what, yeah what does moseying look like maybe? oh um just like uh, well we're gonna be in the desert and so it might be just a slow little walk <laughs> observing all the creatures and friends i meet along the way because the we're really trying well hopefully not rattlesnakes but we'll probably see them and they don't generally as long as you keep your distance they don't want to bite you um but we're really trying to get out of the rat race of nine to five thinking that says we have to be busy all the time and if we're not doing something. We want to get out of the idea that tells us that doing nothing is not productive and is a waste of time because doing nothing is actually where creativity is born. It allows our nervous system to calm down. There's a lot of benefits to slowing down your lifestyle and we're seeing that from this year we've been gifted in Nebraska it's it's more like a year and a half. It has turned into about yeah. a year and a half, hasn't it? Thank God for Dick Meyer. Yeah. Can I just say that for a second? Yeah. For those of you who don't know, we've been housed for free for over a year now. And we maybe told this in an earlier episode, but how we wound up here was we met Dick and his wife in Salt Lake City, and they said, why are you not working faster on 
this project and when we said we have jobs it's hard to come home from work and work he said oh so you need time and space my wife and I have this house in Nebraska would you like to move there with your pets and live for free and we said no that's absurd (laughs) We have jobs. We have life here in Salt Lake City. And why would we move to Nebraska? (laughs) But we also realized that if we said yes, uh, that this was an opportunity for us to really dig into something that both Amy and I were passionate about. It was an opportunity to put away this uh, business-as-usual lifestyle and really try and... I I need to acknowledge that um, we were able to make this decision because we come from a place of privilege. Amy and I are both pretty well educated. Um, We're both pretty employable. So we knew that if this uh, experiment didn't work, this year was not fruitful. The Good Grief Network never got picked up or um, didn't get off the ground. We knew we could relatively easily go back into the job market, or at least I knew that. And so... Um, I know that not everyone has the luxury to just get up and move and, uh, you know, take this really big risk. Um, But we were fortunate enough to do so. And we have a lot of supporters who have had our back in this last year. And I'm not, I don't want to make it seem like it's been an easy year because it hasn't been. Um, Our financial struggles have been a really real and uh, at times painful and anxiety provoking situation. But we have been so held up by our community. Uh, Dick has really stepped in, not to mention several others, uh, people like Mary. Uh, Phil has stepped up. and, and All of our patrons, yeah. really. We don't, I mean, we literally can't mention the names of everyone who supported us because there have been so many people who have really shown us that, that what we're doing is important and that they believe in the work we're doing. And we're not just talking financial support here. We're talking emotional support. We are talking encouraging words, encouraging messages. The heart of the community that holds us is why we keep doing what we're doing. And Laura's right, it's not easy, and we don't often talk about that side of it because there's a lot of things that I love about our life. One of the main things being we don't have to be in the same rat race that we used to be in and getting to see how much healthier my mind and my body and my spirit are when I'm not caught up in that struggle. And we don't have health insurance, and if we need to go to the doctor, it gets scary of how we're going to pay for it. And we have pets with vet bills, and there's been a few times where things get hard, but... And car, car maintenance. Car maintenance, yeah. We've we've had some hard times this year. That's a fact. And simultaneously have always seem to have someone come through right when things felt impossible. And sometimes that person coming through, sending money, didn't even know we were currently struggling as much as we were. They just would send it. That is why we were able to make these giant life changes, uncomfortable changes. Well, and it has, I mean, it's been really isolating. We moved from Salt Lake where we had a really strong community and network of friends and support and activities, things to do, uh, ways to get out and experience culture. And, oh my God, do I miss the food in Salt Lake City. Here in Scotts Bluff, it is so hard being a vegetarian. There aren't many options. People look at you crazy if you say you don't eat meat. Um, that's insane. They, like, it feels archaic almost. But, but you know, we, we sacrificed that. We moved to uh, Scotts Bluff and, uh, and we've 
we've made a community here as well. And and actually, Amy, I'm I'm getting a little sad because we're moving probably in about a month and a half or so. Yeah. Um, it's really starting to hit me that this is another place that we're going to pack up and and leave, and we'll be able to visit, of course. But it's not the same as being here. And it's true. It's never the same when you visit as when you lived in a place. And Laura and I have both moved a lot over the years for you know grad school jobs whatever adventure adventure uh, laura did americorps um whatever you know called to us we picked up and and moved and uh that's been a privilege that teaches me a lot about life and about people because there's good people everywhere you go and everywhere it continues to amaze me and yeah we've met some really beautiful open-hearted people here in nebraska and it's going to be hard to leave because the part that does get hard for me to understand is I'm surprised every time when I move away from a place how sad I get. Yeah. yeah. And you think it'll be different because you're not going to love it as much as that last place you lived or you're always comparing it to something else. But when you leave, there's there's a new grief and it feels new every time. It's true. It's true. Well, and I think you leave a part of your heart back in that place. You know, you leave a part of your heart with the people and the connections you've made. But also, you and I have had the opportunity to spend a lot of time in the natural world here in Scottsbluff. And so uh, we spend a lot of time in the winter at the Wildcat Hills hiking. And then we spend our summers at Lake Minotaur swimming and playing with our dogs and uh, I'm going to miss those things. You know, they they were ways for us to get out and experience the natural world and really slow down, you know, especially after a, a day of working on building the Good Grief Network. It provided an opportunity for us to, to be silly, to go for a hike, to swim, to play with our dogs, to uh, adventure. And there's something miraculous that happens once you get into the natural world and stay there for a little while. Like, you, you slow down. You have to slow down. And time and time again, I'm amazed at how I feel like it's extra work to get outside or to go to the lake. And Amy will oftentimes say, like, I've packed everything up. You literally don't have to do anything. Just get in the car. I will drive (laughs) us to where we need to go. And I'm like, I don't know. It's hard. I feel lazy. But then we get there, and my mood is drastically altered. Uh, And I think it points to the idea that, that all of us need to spend more time in the natural world And I understand not everyone has the luxury to do so. I understand that natural places may not be available where you are. Uh, And this is, in our program, we talk a lot about, you know, do you have a a plant that you can grow? Is there a tree nearby that you can form a relationship with? It is absolutely essential, especially in these times of great existential angst, angst and despair in confusion and chaos, um, to get outside and to spend time with something that's that's from the natural world, that's not built by humans. Uh, just go and, and befriend a tree, you know, befriend a, a wild space. Well, and if you're in a city and, and don't have a lot of access to natural spaces, I think just getting outside is enough. It, of course, never feels as good as a forest because you have concrete everywhere. But the natural sky and... Well, and I think this creates a a good transition to talk about money. I wanted to share that uh, I grew up poor. I grew up with very little means. Um, I grew up living paycheck to paycheck and oftentimes not 
having enough money to do a lot of things. Um, many of the things in my life were repossessed when I was growing up because my mom could not afford to pay anything, my house included, uh, which is a whole nother can of worms that we don't necessarily have to get into right now. Uh, but, but I feel like asking for money, as you mentioned, Amy, is a, is a shame trigger for me. Uh, it's really hard to ask for help. And I feel like there's a, a sense in me that I should just be able to go out and work 80 hours a week and, uh, be able to really bust my ass and make enough money where I don't have to ask for help. And through this big cosmic experiment, uh, which is partially mostly coined by our friend Stephanie, that, that term, um, we've really had to rely on our on our supporters and we've had to ask for help time and time again and it's a humbling experience and also what what's beautiful is that the people who provide money and support for us perhaps we can never pay them back perhaps this is not not perhaps we can't. We, we can't. physically yeah. can't pay them back, and and they don't expect us to, which is the beauty of it. Well, and I'm and I'm thinking magic. about the how the folks who support us oftentimes love what we're doing or really support what we're doing, and seeing it as a way of paying it forward. You know, they invest in us because they believe that the tools we're putting out there, that the program we're really trying to build. Uh, is worth something in this world. Um, Dick often jokes that uh, we're here to save the planet, and I have to continuously remind him that I, I, as one human being, cannot save the planet. But what I can do is try to impact change in the people around me, in in my arm's length reach of those people who are around me. Otherwise, it gets too overwhelming. And I think part of the reason that I created the 10 Steps is because I was feeling this overwhelming urge uh, to, well, and technically I created nine steps. Amy helped me with the 10th. So, um, but, but part of the reason that this program even came to fruition is because I thought somehow that I needed to save the world and that became too much for me. It's, it's too overwhelming. One person cannot hold this burden alone. And in fact, one person can't change the world in mass but what we can do is change the people around us we can change ourselves first and then that sends ripples through our community and with the people we spend our time with and the conversations that we have and through doing those things that is how change is made and I really see the Good Grief Network being a, a true grassroots movement, a uh, word-of-mouth movement, a I'm going to do my work so you do your work and let's see how how beautiful, how much meaning we can make in our life right now. And so that's kind of where the Good Grief Network has its original roots is is in, in scarcity, in money scarcity, in, in scarcity of um, hope, I suppose. And now Amy and I have this opportunity to interact with thousands of people all over the planet. And, um, and all this has happened in a very short amount of time. And and I'm meandering a little bit. Uh, I started to talk a little bit about money and how I didn't come from money and, and now how we have to ask for it to stay afloat, to pay our bills. Because as much as Amy and I want out of this capitalistic rat race, we're still deeply embedded. We still have credit card debt. We still have overwhelming student debt, which, uh, 
we're never going to pay off unless something happens externally. Like, it's just, it's damn near impossible. Yeah. Even uh, even if we ever came across money, if it would probably only make a dent in our student loans. <laughs> it's true. And yet we both have master's degrees, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. I'll take that debt because I believe education is freedom or can be freedom. Well, so let's go back to our conversation about money and asking for help. And um, I think on, in, in my personal perspective and the things that I have encountered, I've had to ask for help a lot. I have been in a position where the only ways I get by is from help from my community. And it started when I was young. I needed rides everywhere because I didn't have parents at home. And so if I wanted to participate in sports or band or do anything, I literally had to ask my friends as parents for rides. And, you know, from there, my sister took care of me through, uh, so I could graduate high school. She basically let me live with her uh, my last two years of high school. And then through college and then grad school, I have set up a few GoFundMe pages because I've realized that I don't have a lot of money, nor has the acquisition of money been a primary goal of mine. Uh, I see money as a means to purchase an experience. Uh, I see money as a means to um, buy us a beer. You know, I don't I don't see money as being my ultimate goal. It never has been. And I, I feel like maybe that's the same for you. Yeah, my relationship with money is complicated. In fact, I was thinking I don't even know how to talk about it in a public uh, way. And so what I will say is I was raised uh, for sure middle class, possibly upper middle class, by parents who came from not having money. And there was an overcompensation there and still the feeling of not enough, fear of, of missing house payments, and a real anxiety and shame around money that was pushed on to me. And my parents are both workaholics and good-hearted people. And so, and they listen to this podcast, so I don't want to by any means sound like I'm bitter. I feel like I was raised like so many folks in this country whose parents were fortunate enough to believe in the American dream, or maybe not even fortunate enough, because I'm thinking that that's privilege to even believe in the American dream, because if you're not privileged, you see through that. I don't know, though, but many people come to our country with the idea of the American dream. And if you just work hard enough, if you just try hard enough, you'll get money and then you can buy your white picket fence. I feel like that is, it's everyone's dream. It was everyone's dream. Yeah, and my that was my parents' dream. And, and it was their dream for their kids to do better than them. But they didn't, not only, I want to say they didn't think about this, but none, no one was thinking about what does... No one's too broad. People weren't talking about what does it look like for your kids to do better. And with the way the economy was going, it's not helpful for better to mean financially better. My parents are pretty comfortable now. And they've worked their butts off their entire life. In fact, I'm trying to get them to slow down. And that seems near impossible. Yes, I'm talking to you, Mom and Dad. <laughs> and, uh, and, and they don't know how because all they've known is hard work and they feel guilty if they're sitting still. They don't know how to just enjoy things. And so that's my goal for them. And that's something, I guess, part of my journey 
around financial issues and whatnot and doing things like living with nuns when I was 23 and living with these alternative folks who view money differently has done for me is that I've realized having money can actually become a trap because then it feels like never enough. You got to upgrade that house. You got to upgrade that car. So everyone's always living at the, the edge of their means. Interesting. And yeah. it creates a sort of almost enslavement, although some would argue that's too strong of a word, but I know when I've been working jobs to make better money, I end up feeling like I'm giving my soul because I don't know why I'm doing it and money's never been enough for me. I cringe a little to hear myself say that, that money's never been enough because our culture is just so money-focused and... There's part of me that worries about what people will say, that we live both in poverty and a beautiful, rich, in meaning life. And we're well, not and that's used mostly that. supported by other people. Right. I mean, to be right. honest, we could not afford our monthly bills if we didn't have patron supporters. Right. Right. And it's a struggle every month. It is. It is. And, um, Part of me is like, oh, no, how, are we going on too long about this? And then there's part of me that's like, we barely talk about the hard parts, about what we're doing, and we have given so much. But there's a reason. It's not because we're saints. It's because we believe in what we're doing. Well, and because we know that the current uh, cultural norms aren't suiting us. They didn't bring us meaning. Um, Amy and I both have experienced tremendous depression through most of our adult lives, and so what do you do if you don't want to live? I mean, you right. literally have to restructure your life and find meaning. Right. And what brings us meaning? What brings you meaning? Love, which I feel like sounds so hippie and ambiguous, but fierce love. The kind of love that allows me to say, oh, I have a flexible schedule. And you just lost someone close to you. Let me drop everything I'm doing and show up. I am proud to be that person. And what is hard is we travel so much and with this work we're doing we can't be that person for everyone we love every time but when we can it feels it feels good and it's who I want to be I, I don't want work to be more important than the people I love yes. and, and yeah. what's interesting is that we didn't start good grief as a job but it's kind of turning into that. Well, and I want it to be. I, I mean, mean, too. And I want to give it everything I have to this work. And all of a sudden, it's giving me compassion for my parents because I want, I'm neglecting friends and neglecting uh, checking in with my family as often or things of that nature. And I'm telling them, we're working on a book. I need time and I need space. And there's part of me that doesn't feel right about that. But then there's part of me that knows that these people who love me see how I light up when I talk about this work and what it means to me. And that I'm not just doing this work for the sake of work. I'm doing it to help people because I've seen what it can do and how it helps people. And once you witness that, it's you, why wouldn't you want to give it your all if it means helping a lot of people? To me, that, that feels like something that I would be honored. And it, it's a gift. I don't know. I'm overthinking it. But it's a gift to be able to help people. I love helping people, and yet we live in a culture that tells us help everyone else and not and don't help yourself. 
and that that's somehow something to admire. And I disagree because I believe that kind of help can come from the wrong heart space. I want to live in the like kind of, guilt. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to give from those places anymore. I want to give because well, and I we love... don't want to get from those places right. either. That oh my god, I'm so glad you mentioned that because yes, if you're listening to this and feeling like oh my god, I feel so bad for them, I need to donate. Please don't, or you know, donate but switch like figure out a different reason <laughs> because clearly we could use the help. Um, but but that's not what we're about, and that's what we're trying to get listeners to hear or see is is this idea that. Guilt and shame attached to money and generosity is not real generosity. Real generosity comes from feeling like you have an abundance of something. Well, and I think what I'm trying to operate from a place of, and it seems like maybe Dick and Mary, and and now we're sort of just um, putting them in a category, I think. But maybe it's helpful to illustrate this point. And the point is, uh, to whom much is given much is asked from or what what's that quote to those who have to whom much is given much is expected much is expected yes isn't that like spider-man or something like that not that particular (laughs) quote but um spider-man says something along the lines of if you have a lot of power with great power comes great great responsibility responsibility. okay i remember now um but the the sentiment is the same right i mean amy and i have just seen so much generosity over these past few years in in a huge capacity and I know we've been talking a lot about our relationship with money and kind of where we stem from and what we think and I also want to put out the name Amanda Palmer who both has a TED talk and has a book I think the book is called The Art of Asking Uh, I'll include it in the show notes and I think you should check it out both the book and the and the TED talk but she's talking about the power of asking for help and being supported by a community and since what Amy and I are really doing is trying to work on the community level and I've realized uh, especially as we're trying to work on a book about what we're doing with the Good Grief Network that I very much need this program. This program helps keep my sanity. It helps me keep uh, keep connected to people who are also feeling this despair and this powerlessness. And And what we do through our 10-step program is really build empowerment. We build connections and empowerment so that you don't feel like you're the only fucking person in this world that sees that we are completely insane and that we are on a tremendously destructive uh, path. And that is helpful for me. And I think it's been helpful, not just I think, I know it has been helpful for almost every participant that's come through our program. Not everyone jives with our methodology, and that's okay. I I don't think our program has to be everything to everyone. But I do think it does pack a punch for those people who really need this program. Yeah, we've talked about this and how our work also is... There's lots of other ways to do this work that we're doing. It doesn't well, have because it's just process, work, right. right? It doesn't have to be our program, and yet I have yet to see a version that's as scalable and able to quickly get into a community and actually show results as ours. Well, and continue to have people meeting time after time, right? Because it's designed like something like AA or Al-Anon, where if you want to, after you finish those 10 steps, you can start those steps again. And I can guarantee you will be in a different place when you get to step one the second time. You'll be in a different place when you get to step one the third time. And the fourth and the fifth. We work this program almost probably about... We've worked this program about 10 times, and every time I come to step one, 
I'm a different person. I have evolved in my thinking. I've learned new things. My perspective is different. And I feel like I am really working to build my compassion. And, and so every time we work these, these steps or this program, it's different. And like you said, there are many other programs that are trying to get us to do process work and trying to get to come together in community. But this program really emphasizes seeing people coming without judgment, uh, working through your own shit, because we all have our own shit that we have to deal with. No one in this world is without trauma. And I fully believe that. We all carry our traumas because it's part of the human condition. We're going to be hurt. People will hurt us. Experiences will hurt us. And then we have to find a way to make it through. And for those of us who don't make it through, that's where we become bitter. That's where we become jaded. That's where it's easier to identify with the shadow sides of our beings than it is with the light and the love that we have within us. Now I think is an important time to talk about our ask and and why we're asking for money. And in our show notes, you'll find our GoFundMe page. But where I'm at is I have been accepted to participate in Margaret Wheatley's next warrior training, which is happening in October at Ghost Ranch. And we have been reading Margaret Wheatley. We think she's profound. I think that what she has to say is amazing. And I think that she really gets our circumstance of the world, of our crises, of our predicament. She gets it like very few others do. And she's hosting this warrior training, and I, I need it. I need it. What's going to happen here is is that as Amy and I continue to do work with the Good Grief Network and build a network of people who all want to connect to each other, it's going to become readily transparent if I'm not doing my work, if I'm not holding up my end of the deal to hold space and to be the best version of myself, that's going to be clear. I, I want to be the best version of myself. I want to reduce my triggers. I want to have some skills so that I can deal with my tremendous amounts of anxiety and depression that have manifested not only in my mind, but in my soul and my spirit from so many years of abuse and neglect. And, and my body, yeah. And I need techniques, you know? And and I've gone to therapists for a number of years. Most therapists have minimized my problems. Um, most therapists have not been helpful. There have been two or three, which have been completely amazing. And I'm so grateful and would not be here without them. But the idea is that I need a place where I can go where I don't have to hold space for other people, where the space can be held for me to process and to grow and to transmute some of my wounds into strengths instead of just feeling like the victim. And my warrior training has the capacity to do that, to provide tools for me to use, and then I can digest them and bring them back to the Good Grief Network. It's my ask that if you have been inspired by what Amy and I are doing and the the fact that we've given up um, our sort of business as usual, nine to five, health insurance, uh, more certain than not sort of lifestyles, if you've been inspired by us just taking it one day at a time and saying yes to our adventures into our opportunities, then please just throw $10 our way, throw $20 our way, more if you can, and help us get to these, well, Amy will talk about her retreat in a second, but help me get to this retreat where I can really prioritize my healing so that I can be a better facilitator and so that I can be a better person and that I can be more clear 
as I continue to move forward, reducing the amount of, of trauma that I hold within my person and my spirit and my body. Right on. And yeah, uh, what I wanted to add about your retreat is, so we were planning for Laura to go to this retreat for a few reasons. Um, you may remember I went on a vision fast. I talk about it in episode eight. We'll probably do a link to that. But last year I, I did this. Laura was so supportive and encouraged me to do this task, this retreat, this opportunity, to, opportunity look to look inward. And I said yes, and it went wonderful. And it uh, healed me in so many ways. It helped me come into my power in so many ways. And I just felt so grateful that it was like, a, like how can we find, like, basically it was just a matter of time before we found something for you to splurge in some way. And it was Laura's, like, generosity because we didn't have a lot of money and she was the one that was like, no, you should still go on this vision fast that we can't afford. A vision fast is a really valid and wonderful opportunity, and I cannot recommend enough any sort of services with Kindy Nebaker. She has helped us become who we are. Um, she mar- a- she married us. She- well, spiritually. Spiritually, right? We have we're still not <laughs> legally married because we have too many people that we want to invite and make sure they're all there, and we don't have much money, and that combination means you're never going to plan a wedding. So we did our own spiritual ceremony. So we're just spiritually married. Yeah, which which is enough for me. It counts for for us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, except unless you go to the hospital and I can't visit you. Right, there are some logistical things. Anyhow, okay, so that's my retreat. That's my retreat. It was my turn to go to a retreat. Amy and I agreed I'm going to this Margaret Wheatley warrior training, and... Well, and Margaret Wheatley was kind enough to meet with us a couple of years ago. That's true. Like when Good for Grief coffee, was- when Good Grief was brand new, and par- she said, "I get a lot of requests for coffee and meeting up, but I liked your name, the Good Grief Network." And we might not even have been a network yet. Were we just Good Grief? I can't remember. Good Grief Group. Maybe. Regardless, she she liked the name, and she was generous enough to meet with us for coffee. So that alone was awesome, and her work fuels us, but. Um, Laura is too modest and nice to say it. And she is used to being the strong one. She holds space for people all the time. She is one of the strongest people I know, possibly the strongest people I know. And she has a lot of trauma from her past that she still needs to face. And she needs to be able to face it in a place where other people can hold space for her. And she's such a strong presence that that's tricky and that's hard to find. And I know that this warrior training is going to provide that for her. Thanks. (laughs) I know she didn't know I was going to say that. And to be honest, I don't know that I knew I was going to say it. But it's just the truth. And it's what I've been telling people when she's not around. Uh, Because she's just so modest and uncomfortable that uh, I knew it would make her uncomfortable for me to say it. But it's just... I also think you can tell when someone's speaking from their gut, and that is the truth coming from my gut, is that Laura needs this to face some past trauma before our work... I was going to say before our work explodes, but it's already exploding. I mean, it's going to keep growing as we see what we're seeing in the world with climate change and all the other systemic issues. Let's call it climate crisis. Yeah, right, right. With... You're right. With the climate crisis, with the political crisis, with the human rights. Ecological crisis. I mean, we're seeing crises everywhere. We are in a time of just pure chaos. And we want to make sure that if the media comes knocking on our door, which they've already been doing, 
that we're speaking from the right heart space. And in order to do that, we need to make sure we've gone inwards and done our work so that we're not getting caught up in ego or what people think. We're just simply speaking our truth. That's where I want to come from. That's what we strive to do. I think it's what we're already doing. But if we continue to get more attention, which I think is possible, I want to make sure I'm not going to get distracted by all the flashing lights or anything that and there are a lot already there are a lot of flashing lights yeah but let's let's talk about your retreat too because i feel like you can share as much or as little as you want but it's important that our listeners know why we're also trying to get you in not just getting you you're gonna do it we're gonna figure out a way yes i'm gonna do it but your retreat is also incredibly important and timely and we know that in the big context of our year and a half here in Scott's Bluff, that your retreat sucks for timing. But yeah, also, co- cosmically, timing. it seems to really be what you need. Um, so let's talk a little bit. You can tell as much or as little about this story as you want, but I think mm-hmm. that our listeners want to hear why you're doing a retreat too. Right. When it wasn't my year to do it. it my year, it, yeah. It wasn't. Well, with how our money works. I mean, I, I hear you. Okay. Hear you. Yeah. Like, it, it wasn't my time. I just did my vision fast last year, and I'm grateful for that. And they say it takes a year to process. And so I still got plenty of stuff that I'm gnawing on. But sometimes you get an invitation, and the timing of it is just so... Perfect. Serendipitous? Serendipitous. Synchronistic? Synchronistic, let's say that. Synchronistic. Uh, that it feels foolish to say no. And I still almost said no to this <laughs> retreat because I was thinking, we're already struggling to raise money for Laura's retreat. How in the hell are we going to pay for me Two. to go on a retreat yeah. when I just went on one last year? Not to mention the timing of the retreat is this fall and our fall is getting incredibly busy as we mentioned we're moving to arizona which moving states away in itself is very stressful it's a 16 hour drive from here i thought i saw 17 no especially if there's a u-haul involved no let's not add one additional regardless it's going to be a long drive with our four pets and there's a lot of stress involved not to mention trying to come up with the money to to get the moving truck and all of that Um, but, and, okay, and, (laughs) and, uh, my sister's expecting a baby, as I mentioned, at the end of October, and I want to be around for that, and, you know, babies don't come exactly when they're supposed to, you got to be a little bit flexible with that, and Laura's retreat is actually pretty close to the baby's due date, uh, so adding another big event to our fall seemed like a terrible idea, as did paying a bunch of money for a retreat. Everything felt wrong, but here's why I I not only didn't say no, I have already given an official yes, and here's why. It's tough to tell this story in a public venue, uh, mostly because I'm a person who's been uncomfortable to admit much about having a spiritual life or praying, because young Amy was so hurt by religion that I didn't I just dismissed all of it and so I worry of using words like prayer and talking about being in prayer because I want to be accessible to folks who don't identify with that 
type of language or that type of spiritual practice. But I'm a big believer in, I believe it was Kierkegaard who said, uh, how, I'm going to mess up the quote, but we can put it in the notes, but something about how prayer doesn't change the outcome, it changes the individual doing the praying. And that there's a surrender and a letting go that happens while in prayer that is a gift and unlike anything I've ever experienced. And I was able to first get back into praying or entertain the idea when I lived with nuns and one of them asked me if I prayed. I said no. So they said, have you tried talking to trees? And talking to trees was really my in for this type of spiritual letting go which doesn't have to be called prayer it can be talking to trees it can be talking to your cat you can find your own way to do it but what happened is eventually i didn't need a tree present to talk to trees anymore if that makes sense yeah it was a practice yeah and a practice it became a practice and and now i'm comfortable using the word prayer and uh, because I'm not, cons- I don't think prayer has to mean praying to a specific deity or anything of that nature. I think it's the act of surrender and letting go, and that it's a tool we can use to. Well, and I'm I'm cutting you off, but also can prayer not be sort of setting in an attention or uh, saying I'm going to pay attention to this? You know, kind of looking for signs or nudges uh, that might change how we're thinking, right? Like, um. Asking our greater intuition to sort of step up. Yes. And notice. And I think it talks back. Well, and the intu- I mean, and that's why I, when you said that I lit up, but also <laughs> was like, oh my God, that's a whole other can of worms that we don't have time <laughs> for right now. But um, I think that's where prayer mixed with contemplation, the key is contemplation and allowing that quiet space to, uh, to tap into our deeper intuition, to our higher self. Some people might call it God. Whatever you want to call it, there is a higher awareness that can come through when you live a contemplative life and pray and things of those nature. And um, so I had a prayer ceremony one night to figure out why I wasn't writing. And I got an MFA in creative writing. I My entire life goal felt like I needed to be a writer and I wanted to be a writer. And then I graduated and wrote a 100-page thesis and have barely touched a pen in four years. And that has hurt my heart to not be writing. Because you've always been writing. It's been a part of my identity. It's been the only thing I didn't need to over-explain. I never liked labels of any kind, but if you called me a writer, that felt right at (laughs) home. I felt so at home with the writers, and it just it felt like me. And so to not write for four years has been has been in a way heartbreaking and yet i also see that this time has been so fruitful and allowed me to grow now that i'm writing again i am seeing that some real magic and shifting in perspective in my relationship to words has happened in a way that i feel like is really freeing up my voice well and i might be biased uh and i of course am biased but i was reading amy's writing uh when we first became friends and i've been reading her writing all along and she is a phenomenal writer she has a a very um unique way with words that i think can really cut out the bullshit and get to the core of of a life experience uh, a universal life experience and so um as a reader, and I, I do read a lot, uh, Amy is one of the best writers I've read. And so the fact that she has not been writing for several years and now we're embarking on Good Grief Network and trying to get our name out there and stuff, I've been 
sometimes subtly, sometimes not so subtly, nudging her to continue writing again. Thank you. Wow. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I'm trying to take that in. Uh, <laughs> well, continue talking about... And you've about- told me that before. I just need reminders sometimes, and I guess sometimes you're extra open-hearted and it hits you, but I haven't touched a pen barely in four years, and so even though I, I know that I had a way with words, there's this part of me that's like, you've lost it, it's no longer part of you, it got you to where you are now, just let it go and be okay with that. And if you do go back to writing, it'll probably be through poetry. And and, and that's fine too. And Yeah, exactly. And so I've been trying to give myself that space. But one night I decided to have a sort of prayer ceremony type situation. Laura was gone, dog sitting, and I had the house to myself. And I was like, you know what? Tonight I'm going to really try to go into my subconscious and ask why I'm not writing. Ask what I need to start writing again. And in the middle of the ceremony, I was using my phone for music. But so I heard my phone ding with an email in the middle of my ceremony. It was like 1030 on a Saturday night. And so those of you who know me personally know I am notorious for not keeping track of my phone. True. I lose it. It's always on silent. No, no, no. It's not always just on silent, but it's on do not disturb, which <laughs> yeah. is a whole nother level. Like she, for days on end, she'll have her phone on do not disturb, which means if you call, it goes right to voicemail. She like, she doesn't even allow a phone call. Um, and that makes me sound like I hate people. But <laughs> no, it just makes you sound like you hate your phone. I hate technology. And that's not even true because my phone, I'm so grateful for it. It's basically a messaging collecting device for me. And also, occasionally, you get that serendipitous call that does come through of a friend in crisis, or I don't know. I I have a very interesting relationship with technology, but it does overwhelm me, and because of that, I've learned as a mode of self-care, I have to limit my interaction with technology as well as the power it has over me. And the people who love me just have to kind of deal with that, that I'm I'm not always the, I'm not really the person to call in an immediate crisis. And luckily, now that I'm in a partnership, they all call Laura. They know that's the person to call. My family knows to call Laura if they need me immediately. And somehow in this ceremony, because I was using my phone for music and apparently hadn't turned it on Do Not Disturb, somehow the ding came through. And it was from a writer I adore named Mirabai Starr, whose latest book, Wild Mercy, had been on my heart for quite a while. Mostly uh, Wild Mercy, which is about the feminine mystics and the need for the divine feminine in all of our conversations right now, and how it's been overlooked and dismissed, and what we're missing when we do that. And I read it almost all in one sitting. So I get this email at 10.30 on a Saturday night that somehow comes through during ceremony. My ceremony was focused on writing and why I'm not writing and what I need to do to get back into writing. This email from the wonderful Mirabai Star is magically inviting me to a writing retreat that she's uh, hosting in... September at none other than Ghost Ranch, which is where Laura's retreat is a month later. And it was a very nice personalized message. Uh, I don't really know how to explain it without saying that sometimes you feel connected to someone you haven't met very much, and I don't know why. And I don't want to overthink it. I don't want to make too much of it. 
But sometimes you just feel like you are connected to someone in a heart level. Well, and how powerful of an experience to be sitting in some sort of prayer or meditation or contemplation space and have an email come through that says, I want you to come to my writing retreat. And your your prayer and contemplation is focused on what's my next steps for writing. Like that seems like a pretty direct or crazy or divine synchronistic, whatever, whatever word you want to use there. That is something. You're right. And what's funny is the intellectual in me is like, Nope, just a coincidence. <laughs> in fact, my first reaction was annoyance that I hadn't turned my phone on Do Not Disturb. How on earth could I have forgotten to turn my phone on Do Not Disturb in the middle of ceremony? Like it was, And that was when I thought it was a mass email because like many writers and public figures, she has an email list that you can be a part of if you're interested. I recommend signing up. I check them out but not in the middle of prayer ceremony. <laughs> and I thought that's what that was when it, her email came through, but it was indeed a personal email to me and inviting me on this retreat. And my initial response was no, which I, I know. I can just hear my spiritual friends like, Amy, <laughs> what is wrong with you? Um, luckily, I can hear my intellectual friends saying like, yeah, it could be just a coincidence. But... The more I started processing it all and talking to folks... uh, Well, and also, what happened right after that invitation? So, after this invitation, I said a tentative yes, and uh, Dick Meyer, the generous man we live with, said, that came through during prayer. You better you better say yes to that. You better pay attention. Yeah, like, don't, don't dismiss something like that so easily. And so, I said yes, tentatively and very afraid. (laughs) <laughs> and we went on our one-month road trip, which I, I don't even think we've really been able to talk about yet, but we went on a one-month road trip. We had a couple weddings back home in Michigan, and our brother-in-law's 40th birthday party out in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Happy birthday, Justin. Happy birthday, Justin. <laughs> um, also one of our patrons. <laughs> and on this road trip, we happened to hear from a publisher and I don't think we can actually say it yet because nope. we haven't signed anything. Nope. But a publisher a we like and have admired their work and admire... And their books. The books that they're publishing are some of our core books for good grief. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we cite them often. They contacted us and asked if we ever thought about writing a book. Of course. Of course It's only about been our life dream. I mean, yeah. you know, well, no big deal. But, but hold on. I think you're downplaying this. Uh, so she gets this sort of email while she's uh, in ceremony or in prayer asking what she needs to do about writing. It's this writer uh, who, whose book Amy has devoured and loved. And adored. Just, and, a, and adored. And I, that's rare. Yeah. A week or two later, you hear from a publisher who wants you to write a book. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's it's funny and feels vulnerable to share <laughs> because I feel like if I'd heard anyone else tell me the story, I'd be like, they are so full of shit. <laughs> like, I would be judgy about it. And yeah. so it's a little well, scary to share with people. We'll build up the story in that from the, the email publisher. from the publisher asking us if we want to write a book and and be in talks with them, um, came after the day that we finally got to the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Amy and I were sitting in a lifeguard stand because it was after the lifeguard's uh, duty was off, and we saw dolphins come right up to us and breach out of the water, which is not a very typical action for dolphins. And as soon as we see dolphins, which both Amy and I love and have uh, joked about being 
our totem animals and the fact that they were uh, we were dolphins in a past life, uh, which we would say separately before we were even together. Anyhow, it was hours after this that the message comes through from the publisher after we've had this very miraculous experience at the ocean with dolphins and sea life and uh, a very grounding time for me personally. Uh, we get this email asking if we're interested in writing a book. Like, of course we're interested in writing a book. <laughs> yeah. Although there was that part of me that was really afraid and like, oh, no, I haven't written in 40 years. What if I've lost it? What if I can't write anymore? Well, but it's two things back to back right. inviting you to become the writer who you are. When I was losing faith and thinking maybe I wasn't meant to write. We get a hit from a publisher. Yeah. And again, uh, we don't have a contract signed with the publisher, but the thing is that we have submitted a book proposal to them. Uh, and their response to our book proposal was, this is great. Show us some more sample chapters. We believe in you. Uh, we think your writing is both incredibly honest and packs a gut punch, uh, but is also beautiful and compassionate. And I think that captures the balance between me and Amy really well. And also the work that we're doing in this space is it has to be honest. We can we don't any longer have the luxury of looking away or soft coding the predicaments that we're facing. But in addition to that, we can be compassionate. We can choose how we respond and how we choose to show up in our day-to-day -day lives. That is agency we will always have, regardless of, of the situation. Right. Um, so Amy has highlighted the fact that her retreat, it's not timely. In fact, it's its the opposite of timely. It's yeah, out of it's our like way. It's right in the middle of when we want to be moving. I mean, it's, it's expensive. Yeah, yeah. But... Amy has an opportunity where she's been invited twice to really dig into writing. And yeah. as I've mentioned, Amy's a phenomenal writer, and we need her words in this world and her ability to, to see truth and articulate it to a greater audience. And, and so we're asking for $1,500 each. Both of us have applied for the scholarships associated with the retreats. Both of us have received limited scholarships and yet there's still $1,500 between the both of us that we're responsible for. The $1,500 includes the transportation there and then also the housing mm -hmm. um, because we have we have been subsidized by some scholarships and so there's still this this big need that we have and it goes back to our ask but how can we not ask you for help when these beautiful things are happening in our lives these synchronistic things these these very timely events uh, encouraging us to take this leap of faith. And if you've at all been inspired or influenced or touched by any of the work we've done, whether it's our resource library, it's our 10 steps, maybe you've participated in our 10 step program itself or just been had some experience with it. Um, we're asking you for help. And, and it's hard. It, it is, as we mentioned at the beginning of this episode. It's hard asking for help. It's hard putting yourself out there. It's hard saying, I want to do this, and I don't have the money to do it. Well, and I think our asking for help shows that we're doing the work. Because old Amy, before working this program over and over again, would have said, this retreat is a luxury. It's too much to ask. And I wouldn't have asked. I would have just said no. Something has shifted that tells me people comment that we give so much to this work, and we really do. I wouldn't give so much if I didn't believe in it so wholeheartedly as we've seen. I've never been someone who can 
make myself work more than 40 hours a yeah. week for a job I don't believe in. That's well, never been my, not, I was going to say my style, but a style is not even appropriate because what would happen if I did that is I fall into a major depression and can barely function. I've seen and all it. of a sudden I find this work that makes me come alive and we get told by people regularly how much it helps them. And I witness the changes in the people who work the steps and it's beautiful and it's a gift and so it's making me braver than I've been. It's making me bolder than I've been. And it's making me... Believe in the gift economy, right? Right, right. Uh, stop thinking about shame and amounts and, oh, that's too much to ask. And say, you know what? I do give a lot to this community because I love it. And I know that it loves me too. And so if I just say this is where I want to go like, and here's why... I trust that if people are capable, they'll help. And if not, we'll, as a community, be like, wow, that was a cool opportunity, but it didn't work out. Although I already said yes, and, I mean, it seems well, that it's happening we'll find regardless. A way. We I will. mean, we, we have to find a way to get there. And, and you know, if you help us get there, we'll send you pictures. We'll send you whatever sort of product we get from, from participating in these retreats. But fundamentally... The, the sort of reward is knowing that this work will be paid forward. I, I, without a doubt, both of these retreats and our participation in them will make the Good Grief Network stronger. This is a personal development opportunity. It's also a professional development opportunity. And we're really asking for help. And, and yeah. not just the help where we can repay you because right now... All we can say is thank you and hold tremendous gratitude in our hearts. But we guarantee you that we can pay it forward and we can impact lives. And the way that Good Grief has been growing is by the thousands. The people who reach out to us and the people who have participated in the 10 steps, their lives have been different and better and more centered and more focused on things that matter to them. We've helped people find their passions. We've helped people uh, reinvigorate their passions when they were burned out. We've helped people uh, discover projects that maybe they wouldn't have done otherwise. People have quit their full-time jobs to, to line up a full life of activism. People are reinstating their bars so they can help with immigration issues down at the border. We are impacting lives. And the thing yeah. is that, that now is the time for us to ask you for help so that we can get ourselves right, so that we can write a book, so that we can reduce our triggers and show up as the best versions of ourselves so that we can continue doing this work. And it's work that maybe you have already supported. And if you've been a really big supporter of ours, maybe it's time for you to take a step back and let some of our newer supporters really step up. We never want to exhaust your resources. We want to show you gratitude. We want to show you how much we appreciate you and the energy, the money, the time, the books, anything that you've helped us to be where we are right now. We are tremendously grateful and we have to keep moving forward. And this is our ask for you, is, yeah. is help us go to these retreats. And then we'll move to Tucson, Arizona. We're hoping to set up some new stations in Tucson once we get acquainted down there. And then we're going to just keep growing. We're going to keep getting bigger. We're going to keep trying to get our 10-step program in local communities. We're going to keep trying to build personal resilience and empowerment within collective society so that we have a literal grassroots movement that changes people. It changes communities. It changes how we exist on this earth. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fantastic. What people are often most surprised by when they meet us at a workshop or when they work our program 
and the 10 steps is they often comment on our authenticity and I honestly don't know how to be any other way. If you saw what I'm like when I'm not doing this work, I fall into depression very easily. And it seems funny that a chronically depressed person would choose to work with collective grief and every day look at the issues that are making the rest of the population depressed. And bury their heads. Look away. Right. I mean, the, the part of existence that most people are trying to hide from is what I look at every day. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is what I was born to do. Yes. I'm not depressed when I'm doing this work. Don't get me wrong. I have days of very heavy grief, but I now recognize it as grief and collective grief and not depression, which was depression felt like it happened to me. I didn't have any agency. And I now see that it was pushing me away and forcing me to strip away all of these expectations of myself, these cultural expectations to make a living. Only since we have been gifted this year to live alternatively, and I would also include my year of living with retired Catholic nuns in that, those years of being able to slow down and not live in the rat race and be told I have value, not only told I have value in those years, told I have exceptional value, that I'm contemplative, that I have wisdom, that's been huge. And it allows me to do this work because I've never believed in something so wholeheartedly in my life, other than my love for you, which is what allowed <laughs> me to tell my best friend I was in love with her. And and when I believe in something as much as I do with good grief, all of a sudden worrying about what people will think of me feels petty. Why wouldn't I just go out and speak what I know to be true? Because that's what protects me from depression. When I start trying to fit in, when I start trying to follow the status quo and behave in ways people want me to, I get depressed. And so I don't think I can ever call myself a hero on this journey. I think it's, I've been guided. It's doing what you're supposed to be doing. It's, it's what I was born to do. Good grief is what I was born to do. I feel like it's what you were born to do, but I don't want to be presumptuous. But we've talked about this. This is what, this is our life work. This is why we're here. The planet is hurting. There is so much suffering everywhere. You don't have to look far. I guarantee you know someone suffering right now. And maybe it's you. And if so, we send you love and, grat- and gratitude for your listening ear and your openness to keep going even when you're hurting. Because it's hard. Life it is, is hard. hard. It's so hard. And it's hard when you wake up and you look at these issues. And, and the fact that you're willing to look at these issues every day. Amy and I sit in this every day. And it comes back to personal practice. You know, move your body. Uh, meditate. Do yoga. Um, make connections with people who understand where you're coming from and who aren't going to fight you on, on what you think is true. You know, find that compassionate ear. Spend time with people who want to help you be the best version of yourself, not with people who have expectations and are disappointed by you constantly. Notice who drains you and who gives you energy. And spend time with the people who give you energy. Spend time with people who want to help you be the best version of yourself, not people who are going to be disappointed if you didn't fit into the box they thought you should fit in. Whew! All right, take a deep breath. Breathe. We're alive in this moment. Amy and I are so grateful for you listening. Uh, We're grateful for the fact that you appreciate the content we're putting out. I'm grateful you took the time to listen to this at all. There's so much going on in the world demanding your attention, and you chose to listen to Laura and me, and that's a gift. Thank you. 
thank you. And thank you to the people who have supported us in the last year, in the last couple of years. Thank you to the people who have supported me my entire life. Um, never is survival an individualistic task. I would not be where I am without people having my back every step of the way. And so tonight, today, tomorrow, in the future, I am grateful for you. I'm grateful for you listening. I'm grateful for your support. I'm grateful for your belief in us and our idea and our desire to shape the world and make the world a better place. So thank you. Thanks to our patrons. Thanks to our supporters. Thanks to the people participating in our current 10-step program. Thank you for all of you who send positive comments. Uh, thanks for protecting my sanity and telling us that this is a worthwhile goal. And if you feel moved by this episode, please contribute to our GoFundMe page. If you don't have money, contribute by sharing our GoFundMe page. Contribute by sending us a... Encouraging message encourage- that says you f- are feeling what we're doing because sometimes it feels isolating to sit in an office and record this and not not really be sure who's listening. So it, it's nice to be reminded that it's, it's well received. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you for wanting a better future than the one that is coming down the pike if we do nothing. Thank you for wanting to be inspired and uh, wanting to be the best version of yourselves. And Amy and I will continue to try to put out quality tools and programs that can help you and your community uh, be the best versions of yourselves. And thank you for being brave enough to listen to a discussion that cuts through the everyday bullshit and just shows up authentically in its imperfections and all. Thanks for listening to Why a Good Grief Network podcast with your hosts, Amy Lewis Rowe and Laura Schmidt. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and come back next time while we dig into difficult questions during these predicament-laden times. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can find us under Good Grief Network. We hope you have a great day filled with meaning and joy. Thank you for listening.